Father, again, we're so very grateful for the good day that we've enjoyed. We're thankful for the rain we had this morning, though a little bit. We did have more over the weekend, and we're grateful for that and earlier in the week. We're thankful now for the sunshine and the thought of a warmer day tomorrow. You just bless us so richly, and we're grateful. Father, even above those blessings has been the privilege of worshiping and honoring you through these five acts that we do each Lord's Day. And even tonight, we've been able to, to do so, and we're thankful, thankful for each one that participates in leading us and that we can be here together sharing in this very important and precious moment. Father, now as we leave our period of devotion and enter into a period of study, we pray that our hearts will be open, that our minds will be in touch with the things that we address. And it's through Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to be studying the book of Nehemiah tonight. I'm going to volunteer, voluntold a couple of guys to pass out. Since you're on the front row, you get to do that too. Thank you. <laughs> I think I've copied enough for everybody to have one. So. You need to be on the front row. <laughs> So if you're visiting with us and you are a member of the church, you might, you might find this to be a bit out of the ordinary. Uh, perhaps, perhaps not. Uh, but we're doing something a little bit different at Westside starting this month. The first Sunday night of the month, we are getting together um, in, in smaller groups and we're having some study together and just some time of visiting and being together and sharing together. And then on the second Sunday night of the month, we are having questions and answers. There's a box out in, on the table in the foyer. Uh, if you'd like to put a question in there, we'll try to answer that second Sunday night of the month. The third Sunday night of the month, we're having a period of Bible study. And you are welcome to uh, participate. You can ask a question. You can make a comment. Uh, that would certainly be welcome and then the fourth Sunday night of the month, we're going to have a song service. And then if it's a month with five Sundays, uh, we will focus our attention on prayer, scripture reading in a special way. And uh, we'll certainly be asking our young people to kind of take a lead in that effort on Sundays with, with five Sundays, or months with five Sundays. What I've given you is just a, a very brief uh, overview of what we're going to be looking at tonight and over the next um, three months. So really, this is, it's not four months total. It's really just four weeks, including tonight. So four lessons from the book of Nehemiah. And what we'll try to do as we study together is we'll give some background information, some overview, and then we will uh, try to make application and invite Nehemiah into our lives and the message into our lives so that it will change us and it will help us as we go about our daily walk with Jesus. Uh, I kind of consider this more of an advanced study, okay? Uh, we're, we're here for Bible class on a Sunday night. We've got the cream of the crop. Yes, I said that. Uh, and I meant it too. But we've got the cream of the crop on a Sunday night. 
here for Bible study. And so I think we can go a little bit deeper on Sunday night. Um, I believe that about Wednesday night as well. And so uh, I, I'm hopeful that we can just dig right in and really, really develop some thoughts together. Um, I'm not going to read everything on the front page here, but I did just want to give that to you, share with you a little bit of our approach. And then on the back page, second page there, this is the outline that we're going to follow, okay? So let's start like this. When we get into the book of Nehemiah, that's really not the best place to start for a background of that book. We really have to go to the book of Ezra, okay? And so the events of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, Haggai, Zechariah, and even Malachi, those books um, kind of all go together. Malachi is a little bit of an outlier. Haggai and Zechariah certainly go with the book of Ezra, but to appreciate what's going on in Nehemiah, we have to understand a little bit of background. Um, when, you, when you approach the book of Ezra, I want you to remember that we are, we are about 2,500 to 3,000 years into the creation of the universe. That's, that's not that long, is it, uh, at all? Uh, and there's, there's so much history that has taken place, so much stuff, for lack of a better way of putting it, that has taken place prior, leading up to the book of Ezra. And if you look in that little yellow box on the handout, these are 13 periods of history that are covered in the Old Testament. Let's just go through them briefly. First of all, there's beginning. That makes obvious sense. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1 and verse 1. You don't go very far, though, until you find yourself in a whole new period of history. In Genesis 6, 7, and 8, and even 9, we have uh, the period of the flood. Okay? And so if you, if you want to get in your mind the way that the, the Bible can be properly outlined, understanding the history that it covers, I think these 13 uh, items would be good to, to store in your mind. And then right after the period of the flood, again, one of those, duh, points or periods of history is new beginnings. So when you come out of the flood, we've got to start all over again. We don't have millions of people on the earth. We just have a handful of folks. We've got eight people on the earth. And God, through uh, Abraham and his wife and their three sons and their wives, they have to repopulate the earth, okay? And so new beginnings. And then, of course, after new beginnings, you have the patriarchal period. Now, how many periods are there? Or not periods, but how many um, uh, divisions are there in the Bible, would you say? And I'm not talking about Old Testament, New Testament. There are three. And what are they? Yeah, patriarchal age, Mosaic age, and the Christian age. Good. So the patriarchal age is uh, in the book of Genesis. We see it there in the book of Genesis, right? And uh, if you're doing your daily Bible reading and you are doing a chronological reading of the Bible, then you've probably already read the book of Job because Job is a patriarch. 
And he falls under that period of time uh, that's covered in the book of Genesis. And then you move into the book of Exodus, and you have what? The sojourn, okay? The Egyptian sojourn. And so Moses, of course, in Exodus, he receives the law, and God's people, they, they leave uh, bondage there, and they begin to, to sojourn, making their way to the mountain to receive that law. And then they depart, heading to the promised land. And then you have the wilderness wanderings. Why the wilderness wanderings, and how long did they wander? Yeah, 40 years. And why did they have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years? I just hear, it's, it's like that want want in the, you know, the Charlie Brown thing. Yeah, people sin, mumbled, and kind of like the way it sounded a minute ago when y'all were all trying to answer me. So, so this mumbling, this complaining, their sin, of course, and as a result of that, they had to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. Why 40 years? Okay. What's another item significant about uh, the 40 years? It's a generation. And so you'd ultimately have a generation of God's people die out before you get into the promised land. Okay, good. So after that, you have the conquest of Canaan. They go in and they conquer the land. And they occupy the territory. And we read th through the book of Joshua all about that. Of course, they approach the... Uh, the Jordan, they get to the east side of the Jordan and, and they're looking over into the promised land and as they're looking over to the promised land, it's looking really good, but we've got to conquer it and God says, I don't want you to worry about it, you've already conquered it. And they go in and they take city by city by city. They're supposed to take Ai, but they're defeated at first and then, of course, they come back and defeat them later. That's what a lack of faith and some disobedience will get you, but ultimately they conquer the land and God said, the land is yours, just go in and get it. And so they did. They conquered the land. But it wasn't long that they decided, you know what, we're going to be just like everybody else. They became a little bit um, apathetic, didn't they? And so in being like everybody else, we find that they get in trouble with the locals. And as a result of being in trouble with the locals, they did what? Rejected God. They rejected God entirely. And so what would happen then? When they rejected God, what would happen? Well, yeah, they would get in trouble. And as a result of their trouble, what would happen? Yes, they wake up. They wake up and they say, God, uh, we remember you again. And they are, uh, they are having remorse. They're repenting. They talk to God. God does what then? I'm still here in the wah wah, but it's getting a little bit better. Uh, he's raising up judges, right? He's raising up judges, and the judges come in and they provide some restoration of the people, defeat of the enemy, and then they enjoy, of course, spiritual prosperity, if you will. But then they go through the cycle again. And so that's a really significant period of history we see there in the book of Judges. And then we have the period of the United Kingdom, okay? Israel, the kingdom of God. Jerusalem is the, the centerpiece. It represents the presence of God. Okay? And then after that, we have the kingdom divides. So you have the Israel kingdom to the north, 
the southern kingdom of Judah to the south. And right after that, you have a, um, you have a, a, a taken away or the destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians because of their idolatry and their disbelief. Okay? And God tells Judah, who's down below, he says, uh, Okay, Judah, you remember what happened to your brethren to the north? Um, the same thing is going to happen to you. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to be conquered. You're going to be taken away into captivity. If, if you don't do away with these high places or these, um, this worship of idolatry, that's the same thing is going to happen to you. And did Judah listen? No, they didn't listen. Not for long. And as a result of that, you have Nebuchadnezzar coming in and conquering Jerusalem, the, the temples destroyed, the cities destroyed, the walls are laid bare, and God's people are carried away into Babylonian captivity. Now, how long are they in Babylonian captivity? Seventy years, exactly. Now, did, they, did this happen overnight? Did they just go into Babylonian captivity overnight? No. I'm sorry I shouldn't be asking so many closed-ended questions, but it's just getting this process going quicker. So it didn't happen overnight. It happened in three stages, to be exact. 606, 597, and 586, those three periods of time. And over, beginning in 606, over a period of 70 years, they are in Babylon, in that area. Now, there would be some people left behind in Jerusalem, but a vast majority are over here in Babylon. During this period of Babylonian captivity, you have um, you know, some great prophets doing their work. Isaiah, for instance. Isaiah is prophesying during the time of Babylonian captivity. So you've got some good stuff going on during Babylonian captivity. And it's no wonder that God's people are starting to get stirred up and, and, and feeling homesick. Okay? And what's interesting is it's a new generation that's getting homesick for a home that they never experienced. Now you got some of the older folks, of course, that were there, but these new folks, they're feeling it. I want to go home. I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to go to the place of my ancestors. And so you have a period of the return from captivity. Okay? Now this is where our study begins tonight. So you'll see it's uh, highlighted in bold for you there. Return from captivity. So open your Bible to the book of Ezra. If you're in Nehemiah, have no fear. We're going to be there in just a second. But I do want us to kind of start here in, in, in the book of Ezra. So just like going into captivity in three phases, they return in three phases, 536, 457, and 444. And I put those dates on the, the paper there. But under each one of these dates, there are some important people that you want to keep in mind. And there are two people under the first date. And any idea who those two people are? No? Although that's important. Cyrus commissioned this first return, right? Two leaders. Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Okay, so Zerubbabel and Jeshua, they lead God's people back into, on this first wave, back into uh, Jerusalem. And do you remember the purpose? You guys are doing great, by the way. Remember the purpose of this, this first trip back? And, and just kind of keep in mind that the city's been destroyed, right? 
which means the altar's been destroyed, the temple's been destroyed, the city, of course, has been destroyed, the walls have been destroyed. Yeah, so Zerubbabel and Jeshua, they come back, and the purpose of their coming back is to restore connection. I like that word connection here. Connection with God. Because remember that, uh, that Jerusalem is where the temple was, and the significance of that is that's God's house, right? It represented the presence of God, but it was destroyed. So what they had to do is they had to reestablish this connection, this relationship with God again. And so therefore, temple building. Were they able to build the temple? No. Well, what did they build? Yes, yes, that's good. But before that, yes, they, they built the foundation of the temple. But what else? No, not yet. I'll give you a hint. It starts with a, I'm sorry? That's, yes, that's happening. But it starts with an, with an all and ends with a tur. Y'all are good. So they rebuilt the altar. Why? Worship. Right? Worshiping God. Okay, so they reestablished the worship with God. But they're not able to rebuild the temple. Why? What? You're, you're in the ballpark, but there's something like right before that. Okay? So right before that, look at chapter 4. In verse 2, and they, talking about the, the, the adversaries of, of, uh, of, uh, of, of Israel, of the Hebrews, the Jews, they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you. They're not the people of God. Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esasradon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. Verse 3. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, You have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God. They were, it's a nice way of saying this, they were dishonest. That would be a nice way of saying it. They weren't really the people of God, and they, weren't really, uh, they didn't really have interest in being the people of God and working through the process of following God the way that the Hebrews or the Jews uh, were. Okay? They were just saying that. They wanted a piece of the action, so to speak. And since uh, Zerubbabel turned them down, who did they go to? They went to the leaders. They went to their... Um, um, I don't know, we'll just say they went to the chief of the land, right? They went to the leaders of the land and told them what was happening. And as a result of that, they said, okay, we'll put a halt to it. No more building of the temple. And then you come to, Hag uh, to uh, chapter 5, and it says, The prophets Haggai, 
the prophet and Zechariah, uh, the son of Edu, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judea, uh, Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel unto them. And if we wanted to take the time at this point, we'd go and study the book of, uh, books of Haggai and Zechariah. And in Haggai chapter 1, uh, Jackie, what was happening? <laughs> you said it twice. They're building their houses, right? So the, and so Haggai says, you had time to build your houses, but you're not building the house of God. And so Haggai shames them, guilts them a little bit. And as a result of that, they shift their thinking. They get back to what they ought to be doing. Zechariah comes in and he stirs up the people. And so in five, or 458, you have a second group that comes in, and it's Ezra. And this is uh, four, uh, 457, 458. And it's interesting here that uh, uh, you look at verse num uh, chapter 7, verse number 1. Sixty years have passed between chapter 6 and 7. You have the events of Esther and Malachi taking place between the end of chapter 6 and chapter 7. And we're finally ready in Ezra's book to talk about Ezra. Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sarai, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, and so forth. And then you drop down to verse number 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in, the, in Israel statutes and judgments. And as you continue to read through the book of Ezra, we find that they were able to rebuild the temple. Now, if you look on the front page of uh, the little handout, there's one statement that a friend of mine made in a lesson that I heard him uh, preach some time ago. I don't even remember the lesson now, but I just remember the statement. He said, you can't restore the wall without restoring the law. And so what was happening in, uh, in Ezra's part of the return is he was reminding the people of the law. And so this is where you find the speaker of God's will sitting down when the hearers of God's will are standing up. The exact opposite of what we do on Sunday. Okay, But he's, he is sharing forth the word of God. Now, we fast forward to 444 B.C. 444. And what happens just over the next few days is absolutely impressive. In 52 days of work, now it's a little bit longer of a process from the beginning of Nehemiah until the completion, but once they started the process of work, it was 52 days to rebuild the city wall around Jerusalem. Why? Why did they do it so quickly? Because the people had a mind to work. It's amazing what happens when you set your mind to it, whatever the something is. All right. And then another just interesting sidebar here is you're only about between 40 and 50 years away from a period of silence for the next 400 years. And by that I mean no more prophecy. 
God is not utilizing prophets to speak to his people anymore, you have a rest, a silent period, a waiting period, if you will, as we approach the coming of Jesus in Matthew chapter uh, 1. Now, having said that, just very brief background into the history of Nehemiah itself. And remember what, what we're doing is we're just sort of setting the groundwork tonight for the next three times we get together and have this study. What Nehemiah is about, in part at least, is an idea of growing the kingdom of God. Okay? And we think about it today in the terms of the church, the church being the kingdom, used interchangeably, of course, Matthew 16, 18, and 19, Colossians chapter 1 and elsewhere. Nehemiah gives us valuable insight into how we grow the church. Okay? And so you'll notice there at the bottom of the first page, I said that we'll talk about aspirations for church growth, barriers to church growth, and then the commitment required to grow the church. So that's what we're going to talk about. But we've got to lay the groundwork. And so we think about the history of Nehemiah. Um, one writer said, All young ministers should read the book of Nehemiah and read it often. All Christians who wish to serve God in troubled times need to read this book and read it often. Elders who wish to lead the people of God courageously need to read this book and read it often. Johnny Ramsey, who wrote a neat little series called Practical Bible Studies, I think it's four, four or five books, he said this in one of them, Some critics of the Bible scoff at Nehemiah as being a bricklayer's book. Uh, book. But there is much deeper, a much deeper plot than that. I'm right, let me say it right. But there is a much deeper plot than that in this dramatic section of God's Word. The purpose of rebuilding Jerusalem's wall was to keep Abraham's seed safe within uh, and the world outside the confines of the city of David had been taken by the Jebusites. It was imperative that Israel remain intact until the coming of the promised seed. That's the significance of the wall. The book is divided into four sections. Section number one is chapter one through chapter two and verse 11. I gave you some space here so that you can jot down some notes. I didn't want to do all the work for you. Um, but section one, chapter one through chapter two and verse 11. The circumstances which led to Nehemiah's appointment, his royal commission, and his journey to Jerusalem. Okay, this is the background to him getting home to Jerusalem. Section number two is chapter two, verse 12, through chapter six, the end of chapter six. Because of his leadership, the walls are built in just 52 days, and that despite opposition. In section number three, that's chapter seven through 12, The way in which Nehemiah improved the religious character of his own people is discussed here. Improving the religious character of his own people. And finally, section 4, chapter 13 of the short little book, Nehemiah visits Babylon and then he goes back to Jerusalem for a second reformation. 
Those are the four simple sections of the book. All right. Let me make some practical observations in the last ten minutes that we have. When you, when you get into the book of Nehemiah, I think that there are two um, key thoughts that just really stick out. One is about leadership, and one is about prayer. Okay? So let's think about leadership for just a second. Let me ask you, though, what would, what would you say takes, uh, makes a great leader? When you're looking at leadership and, and you're trying to define good leadership, what would you say? Servant-like mentality. Okay. Servant. Servant leadership. Yeah. Vision. Okay. Good. Courage and confidence. Yeah. Chachi, you haven't talked all night. What's going on here? Yeah. Right. Will to work. Determination. Stick to itiveness. Anybody else? So here's some things I jotted down about a good leader from Nehemiah. The first one is from Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 4. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I think a good leader knows how to sympathize with his people. Good leaders know how to, know how to feel what they're feeling. Look at verse, chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth in waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. A good leader needs to know how to inspire others to go to work. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. Good leader has to be enthusiastic about the work. In chapter 2 and verse 12, And I arose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any... Uh, man, what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, neither was there any beast with me save the beast that I rode upon. A good leader must be willing to give time and thought to his work. Let me mention just one more. Chapter 1, verse 5. And said, Nehemiah said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love Him and observe His commandments. A good leader must not just be concerned about his welfare, but the welfare of those that he leads. That's a good leader.
Second of all, I think that when we study the book of Nehemiah, we're going to be impressed with the thought of prayer. Prayer. What? I know we all know what prayer is, but could you describe the value of prayer for your own life? Could you make that personal? What does prayer mean to you? Yeah, maintaining connection with God. Peace of mind, yeah. What does prayer mean to you? Strength. Strength. I think as we go through... um, this short little list I have here, some more things will pop up into your mind as you think about prayer. First one I have down is that prayer is coming into the presence of God. If you look at chapter 4 and verse number 9, nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. There's just something special about being in the presence of God. There's a sense in which we're in the presence of God when He speaks to us through His Word. So when we open our Bible and we read it, God's there. He's talking to us. But it's different for me. I don't know about you, but it's different for me when I'm talking to Him. It's almost... He's always there. He's always present. We know that. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. But to be able to sit there and... And talk to him. Oh, it's just a, it's just something special about that for me. Presence. Also in verse number uh, nine of chapter four, prayer is something that's to be done with diligence. Set a watch against them day and night while we're praying. Prayer is. Continual. Same verse. See it repeated. We see this in James chapter 5 as well, don't we? Prayer is individual. I think that's another thing that pops up about prayer. Uh, several times, I'm not going to give you scripture, it's just several times it's, it's here we see it. And here's one of the neat things about, um, about prayer that we learn from the book of Nehemiah. It does not have to be long-winded. Prayer doesn't have to, you don't have to catch up on your prayer life, you know, uh, whether it be here or someplace uh, else when you're in the presence of folks. Sometimes sometimes your prayer can be really short. Look at uh, chapter 2. He has just received word that the walls are destroyed in Jerusalem. The, the picture has been painted for him. It's very vivid. And he's brokenhearted. He's reminded of the sins of, of he puts himself in the category, or the sins of his people, himself, that cause him to be carried into captivity. And having received that word, he approaches Artaxerxes the king, and his countenance is fallen, which is not a good thing in the presence of the king. It can mean, can mean death. 
But he says in verse number two, Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then it says he was afraid, and said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? Question. Now notice. I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said unto the king. Between the, 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 the question to the king, what do you want from me? And his statement to the king, king, this is what I want, he said a prayer. Short, to the point, in his head, not audible. It's just something, a little sidebar that we learn about prayer. So, I think when we look through that telescopic lens of time and we go back to about 430 B.C., we read the autobiography of a man who was a great leader for the Lord. And I think that this will be an impressive study for us uh, over the next three months, this one Sunday night of the month, as we talk about the book of Nehemiah. Hopefully, we've done a, a decent job laying some of the groundwork for Nehemiah.